I'm Marty Dodson. And I'm Clay Mills. Welcome to Songtown on Songwriting. We got a very special show for you today. We've got legendary guitar player, songwriter, singer, and performer Steve Cropper. And uh, we took some clips from an, a longer interview we did for, with him. The full interview is on the Songtown website. Uh, but Steve has just got an amazing um, history in music and was involved in so many uh, unbelievable projects and artists. So I think you're going to love what he has to say. We'll I'll pop in and out um, as we uh, share different clips from that interview. And then after that, we're going to talk about a question I get all the time. is why aren't publishers interested in my songs? So stay tuned for the interview with Steve, and then we'll talk about that question after. Steve and I started off talking about uh, how we met, and then uh, we get into lots of details about his career. So here we go. We were in the Bahamas playing a show that... We had a little songwriter thing. Steve was the big, you know, the big headliner. And one night, there were all these big songwriters there, Dallas Davidson and Natalie Henby, a bunch of people were there. And they decided they were all going to go across the bay to um, Atlantis and gamble. And as we were walking <laughs> to the bus, I saw Steve and his wife sitting at the bar. And this, other than my wife and my children, I think this is the best decision I ever made in my life. We, as I walked by the bar, I walked over, I said, are you guys coming? And, and you and Angel said, no, we're just going to stay here. Why don't you have a glass of wine with us? So I sat with Steve Cropper and, his wife and had wine all night long while everybody else went and lost money. We and, didn't run out of wine, but somebody may have run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, we and, probably would have too. <laughs> and so, I mean, the stories that you told me were just unbelievable as a person who loves music. So I just wanted you to be able to share a little bit of that with everybody tonight. Um, so would you, I mean, just talk a little bit about your start in music and then the Stax record days and, and kind of just fill us in on some of that. One of the first songs I fell in love with was Bo Diddley, by Bo Diddley. But I heard Ed Bruce, the famous Ed Bruce, do it first. And uh, I didn't know, I was in the, about the ninth grade, I guess my first year of high school, and he was graduating and played on uh, that Friday. And, and once a month on a Friday, they had, most schools do this, they have talent day or something like that. And it was his turn, and he got up and he played Bo Diddley. And then I heard him do it at a, at a dance later. <laughs> and I, I asked him, how did you learn to play like that? And he said, man, you just got to get a guitar and learn how to play it. That was, his, that was Ed Bruce's advice to me get a guitar and learn how to play it so i did so that's the advice that got a guitar legend started get a guitar and learn how to play it i love that now steve's going to talk a little bit about meeting the guy who started stacks records in high school and it's a fascinating story but i started with charles axon i used to pick him up we went to school together and um they always had the radio on and i would pick him up and take him to school but I had to wait for his mom, Mrs. Axton, Estelle Axton, to uh, to iron a shirt for him. And she'd finish that shirt and have the radio on, listen to the radio. And he'd put on his shirt and we'd go to school. And that's how it got started. So originally, it was his uncle, Jim Stewart, who had supposedly a record studio, a recording studio, and a record label. It was called Satellite. 
then he got a letter from a lawyer one time and said, cease and desist. We're, there is already a satellite records. Oh, wow. So they set up with, I don't know how many pots of coffee and came up with Stuart, Jim Stewart, Interstellar Axon, AX, S-T-A-X. They said, wow, that sounds like stacks. <laughs> so then they got our art buddy to draw up uh, the stacks and he, did, uh, he drew up a stack of records. <laughs> That's how stacks got started. That's crazy. So, so actually, uh, you know, it was, a, like I said, originally satellite records, but uh, I don't remember the record number last night, but it was one of the early releases on Stacks. And I think uh, like Green Onions in 62 was, we'd started a new label called Volt, V-O-L-T. And I remember Green Onions went out on Volt 102. And so Atlantic, who was our national distributor, called and said, uh, guys, you're going to have to get that record on Stacks. <laughs> because we don't have time to promote a new label. I think it was Volt 102 as a second release or something. So if I remember, and I may be wrong on this, I'd have to look it up, but I think it came out as Stacks 136 or something like that was Green Onions. And that was a year later. That was 62. Last night, which was a big hit, was 61. <laughs> now, we had been out of high school. We graduated. In, now I'm telling on myself in 59. So two years later, we had that record out in the summertime. So it was a year and a half, basically. Two years. And uh, it, it, it was the shot heard around the world. I mean, it was the number one record in a lot of places. Number three worldwide. And then Green Onions, a year later, we came out with that one. And it became number one in the world. <laughs> and all over, still going today. So I have to jump in here. Steve just told us that a year and a half out of high school... He has a number one record in the U.S. And then three years after high school, he has a number one record worldwide. Unbelievable. And those uh, Green Onions is still a classic to these, this day. Uh, so that's just an amazing start to his career. And uh, here we go with some more. So then how, how, where in there did Booker T and the MGs get formed? Uh, well, it was basically just to put together a band as a staff band. And, and we were actually asked to come in on a Sunday to, to play for nothing, basically. And, uh, we didn't play demos. We got, we got paid so much money per day, Monday through Friday, always off on the weekends. And Jim Stewart asked Booker, would he come in and do a session? He, he had this artist that he didn't want to put any money into yet. But he wanted to do a couple of songs on him to see if he was worth being on the label. And uh, he didn't show up. Well, this was a Sunday. And we found out later he did show up, but he told Mrs. Axon up in the record shop. She happened to be up there, even though it wasn't open for service or anything. And he said, you know, I'm so hoarse, and I sang all night long, and, you know, it's Saturday night, and that's my big night. And I just don't feel like going back there and singing. So as far as we knew, he never did come in the studio. So I always thought he didn't show up. And I, finally somebody said, yeah, he did show up, but not at the time. They didn't tell me that. They told me that years later. So we were just jamming around and came up with uh, this blues thing. And then uh, Jim Stewart said, man, that's pretty good. If we wanted to put something like that out, have you got anything you can put on the B side? <laughs> we just looked dumbfounded. What? <laughs> you got to be kidding. So he was serious. Jim Stewart was very serious. And I said, we just all said, no, we don't have anything. And I looked at Booker and I said, Booker, you played me a riff about two weeks ago. You thought might be good for, you know, a, a song with lyrics or whatever. 
And uh, he said, well, I don't know what I played you. He said, come down to the organ and I'll play a few riffs and see if one of them is. And he played Green Innes. I said, that's it. Three takes later, we put it together. And three takes later, that's the record that you hear on the radio. That was which so song? basically luck, the big <laughs> word luck, all capital letters, <laughs> better than Vegas. It's like hitting two jackpots at the same time. What was the A side and what was the B side on that? Uh, the B side was a song called Behave Yourself, which Jim thought was going to be the A side until <laughs> I played that demo at a radio station. I was real friendly with the disc jockeys and they just liked anything. And I said, this is something we cut Sunday. And of all people, I had Scotty Moore cut me. I said, man, we, we cut something yesterday. I think it's pretty catchy. Would you cut me a demo on a dub? We call them dubs like we still do today, I guess. And he said, sure, bring it on down. And he ran the lathe over Sun Records. And I took it over there and he cut. He said, you're right, Steve, that's pretty catchy. We didn't have a name for it, no name for the group or no name for the record. It was just a track. And uh, so I went down on Reuben Washington's radio show on Tuesday morning. He had drive time on Tuesday morning. And I said, uh, Ruben, would you listen to this and tell me if you like it? I said, I think it's pretty catchy. And he backed it up and played it again. The phones lit up. What I didn't know is he backed it up. I said, what are you doing? You don't like it? He said, no, I want to hear it again. <laughs> he put the switch out, put it out on the air, and the phones lit up. Oh, wow. <laughs> they were calling the record shop, and I get back to my gig at 9 o'clock, show up, and Mrs. Axis says, Steve, what have you done? I know you had something to do with this. I said, you're not talking about this, are you? <laughs> And it was the dub in my hand. <laughs> so um, she called her brother, Jim Stewart, at the bank. He was working at the bank at the time and said, you better get over here on your lunch break because we got something going on you need to know about. So when he heard the story and what had happened, the phones were ringing off the wall at the record shop, just like they were at the radio station. Wanting to know who that was, where they could get it, where they could buy it, and, you know, who is that? So he called an emergency meeting with everybody, and so we had to come up with a name for the group and a name for the song. And so we did that afternoon. That Booker T and the MGs? Is that the name? That Booker T and the MGs. That's oh. how they got started. And That's so originally it was uh, Al Jackson on drums, Booker T Jones on organ, and myself on guitar, and Louis Steinberg on bass. Louis also played on last night. He was the staff guy. So what we did, we had a production pool, and it was Booker T and the MGs. That's four. And Isaac Hayes and David Porter making six. And we shared in all the records and we played on all, all those songs. And so Jim decided to pay all the guys. And so it was like if the record made it, you got more than what you'd get if you just got paid for the session. So we got paid for the sessions. And also we were in on royalties. I think we got a penny record or something. I have to get what I think it was a penny record. Next, I asked Steve to talk about Otis Redding. They wrote a lot of the songs uh, that were big hits at the Lorraine Motel. In Memphis, uh, there weren't many choices of places that Otis could stay when he came to town, and that's where uh, they would often write, which is now the Civil Rights Museum. So Steve's going to talk about sitting on the dock of the bay and tell us an interesting story about that. We finished that one in the studio, actually, and the day before the session. He called me from the airport. He had his own plane, and he, as soon as he could get to a phone, he called me and said, I just want to know you're at the studio today. And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm coming right down. I've got a hit. And he walked in. He said, get out your guitar. Get out your guitar. And I said, okay. <laughs> so I went and got it out. And he started that sitting in the morning, son. Whoa. And I helped him finish the second verse and the bridge. 
And uh, I wrote the, uh, you know, the licks. And I, he never did hear the electric guitar licks. When I say I wrote them, I overdubbed on them. And that's just whatever came in my head is what I usually play. And in case you were wondering about the whistling at the end of Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, here's that story. So when I tell the story about the whistling on the end, we didn't write a fade out. We didn't have lyrics for a fade out. And uh, he just started whistling. And that was it. And so I think there's some outtakes. And one of them said, Ronnie says something to the tune of says, well, one thing he said, tells me at first, he said, Steve, move in on the mic. And I played acoustic and electric, but I played acoustic on the, on the original session. And uh, he said, one thing for sure, Otis, you'll never be a whistler. Well, Otis showed him on the next take. <laughs> and finally, I got Steve to talk about being in the Blues Brothers. If you listen to that iconic lick in Soul Man, that was Steve's creation. What was it like being in the Blues Brothers? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> just nothing but fun. <clears throat> and I have been telling this lately. I said one of the guys that wasn't that was in the band but didn't wasn't in the movie called me and he said, I don't think they're paying us enough. I said, Man, are you nuts? I said, I'd pay them to be in this movie. <laughs> of course we got paid and compensated pretty well for it, but anyway. And look what it did. Nobody knew what it was going to do. It's just like hit records. They said, how did you know it was a hit? I said, we didn't. We just knew it was better than the other three songs we were doing. <laughs> and I said, usually when one of those records would hit, we'd played on 100 songs since then. And I said, we'd have to go out and play it live. I said, I had to get the record and relearn it. I don't remember what I played on certain songs. I, you know, we didn't know Soul Man would be any bigger than some of the other songs. We had no idea. Same thing with Dock of the Bay with Otis. We didn't know it'd be bigger than the other ones. When we were playing that show in Bahamas, somebody came up to Steve after the show. He had played Soul Man last, I believe, and, and they came up and said, man, you sound just like the record. And he said, I was the record, brother. <laughs> well, I hope you enjoyed that. Steve is just a fabulous human being. Like I said, one of the greatest guitar players of all time and an amazing songwriter. So I'm glad we got to share a little bit of his story with you. I'd encourage you to check him out online and uh, learn even more. So I want to talk about a big, big question we get, and I think so many songwriters are confused in this area. So the question is, why aren't publishers interested in my songs? And we're going to have a, a little bit of tough love here in this section. The number one reason publishers are not often interested in our songs is that they are not as good as we think they are. I think every successful songwriter that I've ever known thought they were better than they were in the beginning. And that really holds us back because if, if I'm going to meet with publishers and playing them songs that are not ready, I'm really hurting myself, not helping myself. And so... Uh, it's super important to get some feedback before you start going around and trying to you know, meet with publishers to find out for sure that your songs are up to the level that publishers are going to be able to work with because a publisher is not going to be interested unless they hear something great or they hear great potential. I mean, those are kind of the two things that publishers look for. I got my first deal based on great potential my publisher told me he he thought i had some good stuff that he could teach me and i could get better but i was not there yet which was a really hard 
thing to hear because I had spent a lot of money on demos on songs that would never see the light of day because I just didn't know. And so the one thing I encourage everybody to do is get a lot of feedback on your songs before you start going to to meet with publishers and not just from family and friends but from professionals uh, from people in the industry Uh, we do a lot of that through Songtown you know Clay and I give people a lot of feedback on their music and you know just be conscious of the fact that your music may not be yet as good as it needs to be to attract a publisher's interest So that's reason number one. Reason number two is sometimes, the other day I was in a mentoring session and I heard four or five great songs, but I could not for the life of me tell you even the name of one artist that would cut those songs. They were super well-crafted. They were great melodically. They were great lyrically. There was no artist out there that fit those songs. And so people a lot of times forget that I can't just write songs for no one. I've got to write songs for artists that cut outside songs. I've got to have my songs kind of targeted at certain types of artists. So if I'm writing uh, pop music, I need to know if that artist cuts outside songs or if they cut only songs from their camp. Uh, if I'm writing country songs, it's the same thing. You know, is it Taylor Swift who doesn't cut anything she didn't write, or Kelsey Ballerini who's kind of in that same boat, or is it a Kenny Chesney or a Blake Shelton that cut outside songs? So, for a publisher to be interested in your songs, they have to be great, but they also have to be something that that publisher thinks they can get placed. So it also holds true that if I'm playing for a country publisher and I play them a bunch of great pop songs or a bunch of great bluegrass songs, they're not going to be interested because that's not what they do. So it's super important that you also go into meetings with publishers knowing what kinds of artists or specific artists would cut those kinds of songs and having done your homework to know that those artists cut outside songs and all that kind of thing, as well as knowing that that publisher is able to pitch to that artist. So again, I don't go into a Nashville publisher and say, I've got this song for Katy Perry, because they're going to say, well, we don't pitch to Katy Perry. We're, we're country publishers. So you kind of have to make sure that you're not writing great songs for no one. You have to write great songs that are targeted at something realistic that a publisher uh, might be able to get placed. The third reason that a lot of times publishers are not interested in your songs is that you have forgotten what business those publishers are in. You know, publishers are typically interested in writers more than they are one specific song. So publishers are not generally in the business of collecting a bunch of single songs that they can pitch. And if you run into that situation, that's often a sign that this is not really a legitimate publisher because the Sonys and the Universals and the big publishers don't operate that way. They're looking for writers that they can sign and they can work with over time. And so if I go in with the attitude of just like, I'm I'm hoping that they'll pick one of these songs, that's kind of not what publishers do. And the other thing is that I might go in with a bunch of songs, you know, even that I have independent cuts on um, some artists I work with and I know, 
and I'll think, oh, I've got 12 cuts. You know, maybe the publisher will be interested in me because of that. But the publisher is going to look at how much money those songs are bringing in. And if, you know, each of those are getting 500 spins on Spotify, the publisher knows I can't recoup my costs working with someone who's writing songs like that. So you have to remember that publishers are there to make money. They're to, they're to get songs placed with big artists. Um, and they're to, wanting to recoup their investment in their writers. So, and to do that, they have to get big songs out on big artists, and they have to be on the radio and that kind of thing. And the last reason, and this hurts more people than I can even describe to you, is your attitude. I've seen more people just ruin their chances with their attitude than I could e- even count because you know they'll come into the publishing office and they'll lead off with my songs are better than the ones on the radio when publishers hear that they're done they i mean they if they're have time and they're nice they might sit down and listen to you but most likely they're going to go this person is arrogant this person probably doesn't know what they're doing and i don't have time for that and you know i've also had uh writers come into a publisher and argue with the publisher about yes my songs are great and back to to reason number three you've got to remember publishers are looking for writers that they're interested in working with and they're only rent interested in working with people that are easy to get along with who are teachable and all those kinds of things they want to look and see if that writer is going to fit their team if that writer is going to be a problem they're not going to even go near that so if you come in and you're arrogant or you argue or you have an attitude about things the publisher instantly goes i don't want to work with this person and i probably don't want to help this person because they're not being nice so i encourage you to you know look at those four reasons and if you're frustrated with your situation with publishers probably you need to write better songs that's our kind of our mantra in songtown if you don't like the results you're getting with your music write better songs then you have to make sure that you're writing great songs that are for someone that's a realistic target for that song and that you understand what a publisher does and what makes a publisher interested in a writer and then you just got to make sure that you've got this attitude that is grateful for their time that you come across as teachable that you would be a good team player and all those kinds of things because as a publisher myself I might hear a great song but if that person's being a jerk to me I'm not interested I just don't have time to work with with somebody like that so always check your attitude and make sure that you're coming across in a way that makes you seem likable and somebody that the publisher might want to work with thanks for being with us today I hope you've enjoyed it and uh Keep writing, keep working, don't be discouraged, and always just keep challenging yourself to write that better song. And if you love the podcast, we we would really appreciate it if you rate us wherever you listen, tell your friends, spread the word. Uh, we don't, we're not asking you for any money for our pay, Patreon or anything like that. We don't even have that. We just want to help educate and spread the love for songwriting. We've also got several books, one on lyric writing called Song Building, one called The Songwriter's Guide to Mastering Co-Writing, and a brand new one called Mastering Melody Writing that just came out. All those are available on Amazon. We'll have all that in the show notes. 
Thanks for sharing your time with us, and we'll see you next Tuesday.